Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 687 for release on Sunday, April 24th, 2022. On WaveScan today, 100 years of radio in Manitoba, Canada, the early wireless years. More on the 90th anniversary of the BBC World Service and our Australian DX report. During the month of April 2022, the Canadian province of Manitoba is celebrating the 100th anniversary of the introduction of official radio broadcasting in their territory. In honor of this auspicious occasion, we begin a mini-series of interesting topics regarding the wireless and radio history of Manitoba. And in our program today, we go back to the very beginning, to the time when even experimental wireless was very young. Here's Ray Robinson. Thanks, Jeff. The Canadian province of Manitoba lies in the very centre of the country, and it was originally settled by waves of tribal migrations which crossed over the Bering Straits from Asia way back in ancient times. Some 500 years ago, the first European fur traders from both France and England entered the area, and then in 1673, England acquired a very large tract of territory in the centre of what is now Canada, and they initially named it Rupert's Land, after Prince Rupert, a nephew of King Charles I and the first governor of the Hudson's Bay Company. Almost 200 years later, in 1870, the new province of Manitoba was incorporated into the three-year-old Dominion of Canada, though at that time Manitoba was just a small square of territory that was informally dubbed the Postage Stamp Province. The name Manitoba was derived from the local indigenous tribal languages. These days, the subsequently expanded province of Manitoba covers a quarter million square miles, with more than 100,000 lakes and a large population of white polar bears. The total number of people stands at more than 1.3 million, and they speak the two official languages, English and French, though many of the locals speak the regional Aboriginal languages. It's also reported that the largest population of Icelanders who live outside the island of Iceland is found in Winnipeg, the provincial capital. Actually, Winnipeg was already established as a trading centre for the tribal peoples before the first European traders arrived. In 1738, the French established their first trading post, and in 1809, the English established their first settlement, which included the construction of Fort Gibraltar. The population of Winnipeg has now reached three-quarters of a million. Like the name of the province, the name of the city was also derived from local languages, and it means muddy water. Before we begin the information about the early wireless story in Manitoba, there's another interesting point of historic information about a very friendly black bear. In August 1914, an English-born veterinarian who was serving in the Canadian Army, Lieutenant Harry Coburn, bought an orphaned black bear that was for sale in White River, Ontario. Coburn named his new pet Winnipeg the Bear, in honour of his adopted Canadian city, and he smuggled it into England, where it became the unofficial mascot of his Canadian Army regiment. 
Before his army unit moved across the English Channel into France during the events of World War I, Coburn gifted his pet, Winnipeg the Bear, to the London Zoo. Now, Christopher Robin Milne was born in 1921, and for his first birthday the following year, his parents gave him a popular stuffed toy teddy bear made by the Alpha Farnell Company. Three years later, in 1924, four-year-old toddler Christopher Robin visited Winnipeg the Bear, known as Winnie, in the London Zoo for the very first time. Christopher enjoyed his many encounters with Winnie in the zoo, and he gave his toy bear the same name, Winnie. On a previous occasion, while on vacation in the English countryside, he'd seen a smelly white swan that he personally named Pooh. So in a childlike way, combining the names of the two animals, his toy teddy bear was actually named Winnie the Pooh. Two years later again, in 1926, his 44-year-old father, Alan A. Milne, began to write a series of poems and stories for children, including two major children's books about his son, Christopher Robin, and his toy teddy bear, Winnie the Pooh. Other well-known characters in his writings for children were Piglet, Kanga, Roo, and Tigger. His writings about Winnie, named after Winnipeg, are read all around the world. Now, back to the Canadian province of Manitoba and the beginning of wireless communications in that Canadian province more than a 100 years ago before the advent of radio broadcasting. During the summer of the year 1909, student Alex V. Polson from the Central Collegiate in Winnipeg, Manitoba, visited one of the several wireless stations that Dr. Lee de Forrester directed along the eastern coast of the United States. Enthralled with the wonders of the new wireless that he'd observed, young Polson, together with several other students in the Central Collegiate on Kate Street in Winnipeg, began experimenting in the same way. Their first successful wireless transmission was made from the Polson home at 94 Cathedral Avenue in the autumn of 1909, and the Morse code message was received by student Melville Sayer in his home in the Alexandria block of Graham Avenue, a distance of about three miles. During the following year, 1910, Dr. Lee de Forest himself made an important visit to Winnipeg, and that'll be our second story about the early wireless scene in the Canadian province of Manitoba, Canada, coming up quite soon. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Ray Robinson, at KVOH in Los Angeles. Last week we had part one of an article by James Careless in Radio World magazine, about the 90th anniversary of the BBC World Service. Today, we continue with that article. The BBC World Service decision to cut back on its shortwave footprint, especially in North America, where reliable, easy-to-receive daily broadcasts have ceased, has generated much listener unhappiness over the years. The BBC World Service's effective shortwave reach has greatly diminished to the point of the word world in its name becoming an exaggeration, said Glenn Hauser. He is a shortwave writer, editor, and producer-presenter of World of Radio, an authoritative weekly shortwave news information program broadcast globally on many shortwave stations since 1982. BBC World Service used to have many shortwave transmission plants in the UK and abroad, Hauser said. The only one remaining in the UK is Wooferton, which also relays other stations. Lots of BBC World Service transmissions still go out from Ascension Island toward Africa and from Singapore for Asia. The BBC World Performance Review, 
2016 to 2020, stated, There were significant declines in the BBC World Service's reach via shortwave radio, with further rapid declines expected over the coming years. Nevertheless, despite this trend, shortwave radio has remained important in some regions during this period, particularly in regions that are challenging for the BBC due to media regulation, geography, pandemic, or strife. Consequently, new shortwave services have been launched in Korean in September of 2017, a daily 30-minute program also broadcast to North Korea, and for the Horn of Africa in April 2018. Shortwave remains vital for reaching regions that are hostile to BBC broadcasts for reasons of media regulation, geography, the pandemic, or unrest, said Titherington. For instance, many services are now focused on Africa, where the BBC World Service continues to serve large audiences, and across Asia. These international broadcasts reach across borders, providing trusted news and information to people unable to access the same locally. Although many North American listeners regularly express regret that the BBC World Service cut shortwave transmissions to this region, the logic behind the decision has been borne out by results. In retrospect, I ruefully have to admit that the BBC World Service made the correct move, said John Figliasi, author-editor of the Worldwide Listening Guide and member of the 2000-2001 Save the BBC World Service campaign to retain the BBC World Service shortwave transmissions to North America. It is more ubiquitously available today via the multi-platform approach than it was before via shortwave alone. Kim Elliott said, Except for U.S. shortwave enthusiasts, the shortwave audience has migrated to the newer media. Nevertheless, we have seen in more and more countries censorship and blocking of the Internet. Shortwave can deliver information across national boundaries independent of the Internet. Satellite television also sidesteps the Internet, but satellite dishes are conspicuous. Shortwave reception is simpler, cheaper, and more discreet. And, Kim Elliott says, my shortwave radiogram project shows that text and images can be transmitted by old analog shortwave transmitters and received on any shortwave radio with decoding by an app on a PC or mobile device. The launch of the BBC World Service in December of 1932 was not greeted as a world-changing event. In fact, at the time, BBC Director General John Reith predicted that the programs will neither be very interesting nor very good. Ninety years later, the BBC World Service has proven Reith to have been very, very wrong. As for the future, we want the BBC World Service to reach more people, but we want that connection to be meaningful. We're not wallpaper, said Titherington. We also want to be making things that have a value for people. We want our audience to feel valued by us. We have to show that we are brave and that we will tackle the issues that really matter to people. Well, that was part of an article by James Careless, which appeared recently in Radio World magazine, about the 90th anniversary of the BBC World Service. You're listening to WaveScan from Adventist World Radio. Radio Sputnik is the successor of Radio Moscow and the Voice of Russia.
but Radio Sputnik has never been on shortwave. It's only on the Internet and satellite, and it's relayed on two local radio stations in the United States, one in Washington, D.C., WZHF AM and FM, and another in Kansas City, Missouri, KCXL. Here's part of a report by Alex Marquardt, which aired recently on CNN about these controversial relays in the U.S. Driving around downtown Washington, if you tune the radio to 105.5 FM, you land on Radio Sputnik, a station funded by a Russian state media agency, playing in the American capital on public airwaves. Here in D.C., you can listen to Sputnik on both FM and AM radio. Their shows are hosted by Americans, and they continue to broadcast even when other Russia-backed outlets have been taken off of platforms like YouTube and Facebook because of Russia's war in Ukraine. The host can often be heard parroting Kremlin talking points on Ukraine. Host Lee Stranahan calls himself pro-Russian. And while the world condemns Russia for the atrocities in Bucha, where Ukrainians were bound and executed, some Sputnik hosts aren't convinced. There's not much dispute about whether these atrocities actually occurred. I think the question is, who's responsible for doing it? They claim to simply be offering a different viewpoint, asking questions, challenging the narrative, which often veers into seeing conspiracies, seeding doubt and distrust, classic elements of disinformation. The companies that put Sputnik on the air are forced to register as foreign agents with the Justice Department. Sputnik is required to tell listeners who backs them, a media group funded by the Russian government. None of the Sputnik hosts we reached out to would speak to us for this story, except Scotty Nell Hughes, a former CNN contributor who is a temporary fill-in host for the pro-Russia Lee Stranahan. Let the American people make that decision. Trust the American people to hear what they're saying and make the decision for themselves whether or not they believe that that is the truth happening. After the 2016 presidential election, the U.S. intelligence community, led by James Clapper, put out a report accusing Sputnik of being part of Russia's interference efforts. There's this gray area of First Amendment protection rights versus um, an insidious presence in, in our country that is really there to weaken and destroy our system. That's really what this is about, and it's state-sponsored. Sputnik programming is only broadcast in two U.S. cities, Washington, D.C. and Kansas City, Missouri. RM Broadcasting helps get Sputnik on the air. Its owner, who lives in Florida, told us he, quote, stands with Ukraine. RM Broadcasting is dedicated to the unfettered exchange of information and ideas, Arnold Ferlito said. That freedom of choice is the ultimate underpinning of our republic. It isn't the job of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, to censor content either, Commissioner Jeffrey Starks told us. Instead, it's to let listeners know where that content is coming from. The public must have transparency uh, in order to be informed and make their own decisions about separating truth from disinformation. The FCC has given its authority here, given listeners transparency so that they can decide to change the dial. Stark said he finds some of Sputnik's content deplorable, but on public airwaves, even if a station is backed by a country allegedly committing war crimes, they can, in the U.S., continue to broadcast. And throughout the course of the day, uh, Sputnik has to identify where its programming originally comes from, and that's the Russian capital, Moscow. That report was by Alex Marquardt on CNN. 
Incidentally, this is what the end of one hour and top of the hour ID and disclaimer sound like on WZHF in Washington. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. WZHF Capital Heights. This radio programming is distributed by RM Broadcasting LLC on behalf of the Federal State Unitary Enterprise Russia Savodnya International Information Agency, Moscow, Russia. Additional information is available at the Department of Justice, Washington, D.C. Listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. The top of the hour ID and disclaimer on WZHF in Washington, which airs the Russian government's Radio Sputnik 24 hours a day. Now let's go to Bob Padula in Melbourne, Australia. First up this time we have news concerning what has been notified as a mid-level solar flare eruption on the sun. The sun emitted a mid-level solar flare on March 31, 2022, peaking at 2.35pm Eastern Standard Time, that's American time. North Americans... Space Administration Solar Dynamics Observatory, which watches the sun constantly, captured an image of the event, which is on the internet. Solar flares are a powerful burst of energy. Flares and solar eruptions can impact radio communications, electric power grids, navigation signals, and pose risks to spacecraft and astronauts. This flare is classified as an M-class flare. M-class flares are a tenth the size of the most intense flares, the X-class flares. The number provides more information about its strength. An M2 is twice as intense as an M2, I'm sorry, as an M1. An M3 is three times as intense, etc. The US government's official source for space weather forecast, the NOAA Space Weather Prediction Center, provides Official information on space weather forecasts, watches, warnings and alerts. NASA works as a research arm of the nation's space weather effort. NASA observes the sun and our space environment constantly with a fleet of spacecraft that study everything from the sun's activity to the solar atmosphere and to the particles and magnetic fields in the space surrounding Earth. Well, that was a short summary of the recent solar flare eruption from the sun which took place on March 31 and the remnants of that particular activity are still occurring in the atmosphere. It's been havoc on for shortwave radio and amateur radio broadcast with fade outs and uncertain 
operations while the flare is continuing. And that information came from the H the Space Weather Government. New schedules were brought into operation worldwide on March 27, 2022. There have been hundreds of frequency changes and schedule alterations and has some information this might be useful. New schedule for World Christian Radio, which broadcasts from its transmitters in Madagascar for the A22 season, is as follows. O300 or O400 on 6180, Spanish to the Americas. And O300 or O400, 13760, English to the Americas. O400 or O500, 11825, English to Europe. And O400 or O500, 17530, China, Chinese to Asia. 1800 to 1900, 9885, Russian to Europe. 1900 to 2000, 13670, Arabic to the Middle East. 2000 to 2100, 11965, English to Europe. 2000 to 2100, 13730, Arabic to the Middle East. 2100 to 2200, 9765, Portuguese to the Americas and Africa. And 2100 to 2200, 11610, morning service in China, East to Asia. Now, Radio Thailand External Services, the full schedule from the Udon Thani transmitting station in northern Thailand. It's as follows. Midnight to midnight 30, 15590 English for the Americas and Asia and tenor 6 degrees. Midnight 30 to 0200 on 15590 Thai for Americas also 6 degrees. 0200 to 0230, 15590 again, English, 6 degrees to the Americas, and 0500 to 0530, 17640, English, 6 degrees to the Americas. 1000 to 1030, 17850, Thai, the Middle East, 305 degrees, 0500 to 0530, 17640, English, 6 degrees to the Americas. 1200 to 1230, 9390. English, 132 degrees to Australia, Asia and India. 1230 to 1245 on 9390, Vietnamese, 132 degrees to Asia, and 1245 to 1300, 9390, Asian language programs, 30 degrees. The station also announces itself as HSK9. That's the old call sign introduced many decades ago, and it's one of the few call signs remaining that, that can be heard on shortwave. But the station also announces Radio Thailand. And the Thai National Anthem is, is, is broadcast at the beginning of each of the program segments. Udon Thani is a large town, city in the north part of Thailand, about 100 km, about 200 kilometres from Bangkok. And the Udon Thani transmitting station is actually 100 kilometres further to the east at a village known as Bandong. And Bandong is reached by bus or car from Udon Thani. 
Some information now from the SWL, the Ex-Bulgaria newsletter in Sofia, based on monitoring observations made in Eastern Europe recently. Reception of the Abkhaz radio, or Apsua radio in Georgian, noted on 9535 by the Sukumi transmitter from 0630, non-directional to Central Asia in the Georgian language. And Armenia, Transworld Radio India, broadcasting in English from the Yerevan Relay Station. Transworld Radio India, with the Far East Broadcasting Association, Pakistan program in Urdu, noted on 9965 by the Yerevan Relay Station. 1500 to 1530 on 13690 with 300 kilowatts and the antenna 100 degrees to Asia. And good signals in Eastern Europe. Reception of the Osterreicher Rundfunk Austrian radio via the Moosefen transmitter on 13730. Noted daytime reception in Europe from 1600 on 5940. 100 kilowatts and 070 degrees to Eastern Europe. Good signals in German. Very good reception of the Voice of Greece from Athens in Greek on 9420 by the Avalos transmitter. 0700 to 0715 to Western Europe in Greek. As in 150 kilowatts transmitter power and 323 degrees. Greek an American singer-songwriter who was actually born in South Africa, a song about refugees around the world called Something to Tell My Baby. Someday we're all Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week... The VOA shortwave relay station at Poro in the Philippines, Part 2, and our Japan DX report. Several QSL cards are available for this program. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports for WaveScan to the AWR address in Bangkok, Thailand, and also to the station your radio is tuned to, WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa, or to IRRS Italy, or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air here in WaveScan. They will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The email address for AWR QSLs is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSL cards is Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. Again, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, Bangkok, 10110.
110 Thailand. And the email address for other correspondence to WaveScan, not reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI in Okeechobee, Florida, USA. Till next week, good listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.